0: Why did Matthew Henson want to reach the North Pole? Was it for fame? Nope, as a black man, his contributions were hardly acknowledged. Okay then, it's for the money, right? Not even close. After his last expedition, he was barely able to get a job as a customs clerk. Let's see, it must have been for the love of adventure. Henson thrived on adventure, but mostly he was tired of hearing what he could and couldn't do. Robert Perry originally hired Henson as a servant, but Henson was better at most things than most men were at one thing. Henson became Perry's invaluable assistant and trusted partner for Arctic exploration. He was so good that despite his skin color and racism of the early 1900s, he couldn't be ignored. Welcome back to the Adventure Almanac, stories about adventure and what we learn along the way. Most people perceive time as day turning into night as we spin around this giant merry-go-round we call Earth. Days melt into weeks and weeks evaporate into months. And some of us notice seasons changing as we zoom around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. It's easy to forget that both time and motion are relative until we change our perspective. It is unsettling to feel the ground move under our feet. And when winter nights stretch a little longer, we get restless. Take both of these things to the extreme, and that's just a normal day in the Arctic. Trying to reach the North Pole is like walking the wrong way on a giant icy conveyor belt. The far north is a frozen ocean with layers of uneven ice that are constantly moving. For hundreds of years, people tried to reach the North Pole, and no one came close. Henson and Barry spent almost a decade living and shivering above the Arctic Circle. At some point, most other people would have given up and tried something else. Not Matthew Henson. Are you ready for an adventure? All right now, let's go. The crowd cheered and whistles blasted through the humid air. July 6, 1908 was one of the hottest days in years. Henson stood on deck waving and smiling, knowing he was headed towards the coldest place on the planet. The Roosevelt gently pushed away from the pier and floated towards the Atlantic Ocean. Henson had spent almost half his life striving and failing to reach the North Pole. This was his last chance. It was his third and final attempt to reach the unreachable pole. Although blimps, cars, cannons, submarines, and trained polar bears were suggested as better methods for reaching the North Pole, their plan was the same as before. It was the Perry Plan, a relay race organized with meticulous detail and based on years of experience living with the Inuit of Greenland. The team was nearly the same as the previous expedition, but this time was different. From their years of defeat, they had gained strength, wisdom, experience, and determination. The people of the United States were counting on them to succeed. Even President Teddy Roosevelt was there to shake their hands and wish them good luck as they sailed away. They were more prepared than ever, but first, they had to travel 3,000 miles to Cape York, Greenland. As they steamed north, the golden sun radiated high in the sky and warmed the deck of the ship. It almost felt like a delightful summer cruise, except their supply ship was upwind and carrying 25 tons of slowly rotting whale meat. Gross. By late July, the sun refused to set and instead gently rode an invisible roller coaster across the sky. They were in the land of Midnight Sun, 600 miles north of the Arctic Circle. As they approached Cape York, they noticed tiny kayaks paddling out to meet them. Henson felt like he was coming home. It had been two years since their last trip to Greenland, but they were returning as friends instead of strangers. Henson spoke the Inuit language fluently, and he was in charge of recruiting men for the adventure ahead. He was well respected among his arctic friends unlike everywhere else in the world here he was judged by his skills not by the color of his skin supplies men women children and dogs joined the crew aboard the ship and they headed north through the stormy sea along the coastline they noticed stacks of rocks covered in a blanket of snow like cartoon ghosts the rocks marked the unsuccessful attempts of previous explorers and it was a reminder of the challenges ahead In Eta, they selected the final team and shuffled people off of the ship and supplies onto the ship. The Roosevelt was now home to 22 men, 17 women, 10 children, and 246 dogs, all bound together on a journey to the Arctic Sea. They sailed into the narrow passage separating Canada and Greenland, and nervously watched huge sheets of ice violently rush south with the tides. All around them, the frozen ocean crashed together like tectonic plates. The ice growled and the dogs howled in a never-ending symphony of chaos. And slowly, ever so slowly, they inched further north, smashing through icebergs. Every collision shook the whole ship and they wondered if the next crash might cause the Roosevelt to split in half. They were in constant danger of being squashed like tiny black bugs between moving islands and the shore. Through the fog and sideways snow, they searched the icy labyrinth for openings. Reluctantly, the ship shuddered in the Engine rattled and they moved forward, backwards, side to side, and sometimes slid across the top of the ice like an awkward seal. Between the family's wandering dogs and piles of coal, they stacked emergency supplies by the railing, ready to be thrown overboard in an instant. It was a sinister reminder that their luck could change at any moment. Crash, blocks of ice smashed the deck. Boom, the dynamite exploded. A geyser of icy water shot 100 feet into the sky, Boxes, people, dogs went tumbling across the deck, but they kept on moving. Despite the danger, they worked. The Inuit women sewed for clothing, provisions were packed and repacked, and Henson built sledges for the expedition. Occasionally, a crowd gathered around him for language lessons. With Henson translating, the Inuit men and women waved their arms wildly and laughed hysterically as the crew tried to learn a few words. Cape Sheridan was as far north as they could go by sea. Soon, the Roosevelt would be frozen in place until next summer. They dropped anchor and the ship erupted in commotion. Dogs were thrown overboard and men scurried around in their fursuits, humming songs and rushing to unload the ship. There was excitement in the air. and Even the stern, steely-eyed Commander Perry was caught humming a tune. They constructed temporary houses using boxes of provisions like Lego blocks to form walls. The bottom of the crates faced the cold wind and the tops opened inward like shelves in a grocery store. Every piece of equipment and every element of the plan was intentionally designed to give the team the best possible chance of success. Unlike other explorers, Perry and Henson knew that it was essential to live like the locals. The Inuit were the experts at Arctic living. During the fall and winter, the teams practiced driving the sledges and dogs and shuttling supplies from Cape Sheridan to Cape Columbia. Every supply run was a training mission for their polar expedition not only was Henson the interpreter, project manager, and carpenter, but he was also the lead trainer. He was better with the dogs and sledges than almost anyone. He translated the Inuit knowledge and taught the explorers everything they needed to know about how to live in the Arctic. One of the first things they needed to learn was how to work in the fur suits. They wore deerskin jackets with shaggy fur pants made from polar bears. Their hoods were made from foxtails and their boots from seal skin and narwhal tails. They slept with mittens on and in their full clothes just in case the ice cracked beneath them and they had to escape. Imagine trying to get a good night's sleep with the thought that the floor might open up and swallow you in the middle of the night. Or imagine trying to get any sleep crammed between two men loudly snoring under a cozy five foot wide dome of ice. It's a good thing they were exhausted every night. By October, negative 40 to negative 60 degree temperatures were common and the sun hid below the horizon for most of the day the great dark was coming. There wasn't enough light to take photographs and terrible storms blocked the sky for weeks. Sometimes they were perfectly helpless, but they were never bored. Before long, it was February and they were ready for their final polar attempt. Henson loaded the sledges with all of the gear and then he had to wake the dogs. He hated waking the dogs. and The dogs were more like wolves than dogs. They were 80 to 100 pounds of pure muscle. They hardly ever barked, but they did bite and fight. It was not an easy task to get the dogs. Captain Bartlett and Dr. Goodsell led the way, followed by Borup and Professor McMillan for support. Henson's team was next, and Perry and Professor Marvin brought up the rear. The expedition party included seven men from the Roosevelt, 19 Inuit men, 140 dogs, and 28 sledges. The dogs pulled, and the men pushed through the sugar-soft snow on their way to Cape Columbia. From now on, they slept in igloos. Every night when they arrived at camp, cold, wet, and exhausted, they cut and stacked blocks of ice to make their igloos. Henson and his team could build an igloo in less than an hour. But still, that's the last thing anyone wanted to do at the end of a hard day. In late February, the sun peaked above the horizon for a moment. Twilight was getting longer, and their ghostly shadows seemed to stretch forever. Behind them was endless gray, and ahead of them was the darkness of the Great North. It was time for them to leave land and begin the 413 mile mad dash to the North Pole. On March 1, 1909, Perry gave the command and Henson and the remaining teams were off. Gale force winds hid the trail and instantly men and dogs disappeared one by one into the snow. It only took an hour before Henson's sledge split in half. In the cold wind, Henson unloaded everything, took off his gloves, drilled new holes, and tried to thread new ropes to patch everything together. His fingers froze immediately. He stuffed his hands into his armpits until he felt the burning sensation of his fingers thawing. He reached out again into the negative 45 degree wind and tried to get his fingers to make the repairs. The team staggered into camp, exhausted, with ice clinging to every hair on their hoods and their cheeks and noses frozen solid. And this was just the first day of the expedition. The following day was more the same. It was cold and dark, and they had to clear a path through the ice with their pickaxes. The dogs curled up into a fluffy ball, hiding their noses and tails while the men worked. Not even the dogs wanted to see these horrible conditions. Even with snowshoes, the men sank to their knees, pushing the sledges forward. Up ahead, the fog was so thick that it looked like smoke from a fire. That wasn't a good sign. Fog in the Arctic meant open water, and sure enough, the advance party was stuck waiting at the edge of an inky black river blocking their path. In the morning, booms as loud as cannon fire erupted as the ice collided together and formed giant folding piles of shingles over the water. Was this their chance? At any moment, the ice might fall apart and leave nothing but the empty abyss of the ocean below. They made a run for it and pushed and pulled their way across the danger zone as fast as they could to the other side. The heavy snowfall continued, but they had to make progress regardless of the weather. However, they could only go as far as the ice allowed. Soon they were stopped by another stretch of open water and were forced to build their camp on the banks of the icy sea they called the Big Lead. During the rough journey, some of the fuel containers had leaked. Professor Marvin Borup and two Inuit men turned back to get the emergency supplies on land. The rest of the party was stuck at the edge of the continental shelf, the big lead, the same ominous waters that almost cost them their lives on the last expedition. They tried to remain positive and stayed busy repairing the sledges, repacking gear, and drying their clothes. However, the intolerable inaction weighed heavily on everyone. Some of the men abandoned the expedition and others were complaining and ready to leave. They tried jokes and athletic competitions to lighten the mood, but after a week, they were running out of ideas. Finally, on March 11th, it looked like enough ice had closed the gap over the big lead. They knew that once they took the first step, they couldn't stop moving. At any moment, the ice could open up and leave them stranded adrift on a block of ice, or worse, not standing on anything at all. The thermometer was at negative 60 degrees, but could anyone tell the difference? I guess you know it's cold when the brandy freezes. That's when it gets serious. They made it safely across the big lead and waited for Marvin and Borup to catch up. Finally, they saw a faint cloud of mist on the trail, steam rising from the backs of the dogs, running full speed like a flotilla of steamships charging down the frozen river. Professor Marvin and Borup's precious load of fuel had made it across the open water. No one in the group knew how far they would travel towards the pole or when it would be their time to turn back, but everyone knew the plan. At some point, almost everyone would be sent back and only a small group would make the final push to the North Pole. Dr. Goodsell was the first to head home with two Inuit men and the unnecessary supplies. Henson was assigned to break the trail for the next five sections. He rallied his team and was determined to put up some big miles. Would he be sent home next? Regardless, he would do his best. Loaded down with 550 pounds on each sledge, Henson charged forward into the uneven ice. He was as tired as he had ever been when he learned that his friend Macmillan had a frozen foot and was turning back. The expedition team was shrinking faster than expected, but they could still make it. The change happened right in front of Henson's eyes. At one moment, the ice was solid, and then with a deafening roar, it shattered apart. The ground was moving all around him, and he knew that one false step or too much pressure would be disaster. He narrowly made it to safety, but with three sledges crumpled in a broken heap, he couldn't go any further. Did this mean that he'd be sent home next? On March 19th, the long days and brilliant yellow sun provided some comfort. Henson needed every minute of light to fix his broken team and get them moving again. Perry ordered Henson to stay up all night selecting the best dogs and rearranging the loads on all the sledges. In the morning, Henson woke up just in time to wave goodbye to Borup as his team returned to the ship. There was no time for rest. Henson and Bartlett blazed the trail ahead. The expedition now moved like a slinky. Someone was always moving any concept of time evaporated. They traveled until they were exhausted. When Perry and Marvin caught up, Bartlett and Henson left their igloos and started moving again. For the next two days, the conditions were nearly perfect and they flew across the ice. It was cold, but the snow sparkled in endless sunshine. For once, the wind was quiet and the snow was relatively flat. Their good fortune didn't last. Soon, icebergs the size of houses blocked their way Huge cracks of open water appeared and walls of ice stopped them at every turn. They zigged, they zagged, and they tried to find a path of least resistance. And then the heavy snow started. When everyone reunited, Henson learned that Professor Marvin was going home next. Henson was relieved. It wasn't his time to turn back. He still had a chance to reach the North Pole. Bartlett left camp immediately and drove his team north. He was determined to reach the 88th parallel. The brilliant sunshine and empty blue sky returned, but up ahead, an unwelcome haze loomed on the horizon. Sure enough, Bartlett was camped at another vast stretch of open water. Henson and Perry quietly built fresh igloos about 100 feet away from Bartlett and went to sleep feeling good. The team had made it further north than anyone had ever traveled before. Just as they were nodding off to sleep, there was pandemonium outside. The ice cracked and groaned, and a large crack exploded inches away from their igloos. Bartlett floated helplessly away into the open ocean. Henson set to work immediately. He connected the dogs to the sledges, threw the supplies on top, and made a path towards the solid ice. They stashed the gear and ran back to the edge of the ice to assist Bartlett and his team. Slowly, Bartlett's ice raft drifted closer, and when it crashed against the solid ice, they had just long enough to escape. What could they do? What else? They built new igloos and tried to go back to sleep. In the background, there was a low, growing murmur that sounded like distant surf. Maybe the gap in the ice was closing. Either that, or something terrible was about to happen. They'd find out soon enough. It looked solid, so they traveled at full speed and rushed across the ice before it could open up again. The ice moved beneath them, flexing up and down like it was alive and breathing as it floated in the opposite direction. Bartlett pressed on for as long as he could. He even went five miles beyond the final camp just to push the distance a little farther. He didn't quite make the 88th parallel, but he had pioneered most of the trail and was returning home a hero. Now it was up to Henson to get the team to the North Pole. At the time, it was a controversial decision to have Henson, a black man, lead the final push. But Perry couldn't deny that Henson was the best man for the challenge. On April 1st, Perry, Henson, Uta, Ukwe, Ngoa, Siglu, and 40 dogs were ready for their final race. They still had to cross 130 miles to get to the North Pole. Henson only thought about moving forward and nothing else. There was no day or night. Henson pushed until he collapsed and couldn't go any further. He'd break for a few hours of sleep and then he was up again and moving. Henson was exhausted. Half awake, he slipped and crashed through the ice. Bobbing in the freezing water, he struggled to grab onto something, anything, but he couldn't get his hands out of his mittens. Was this the end? Out of nowhere, Utah grabbed Hinson by the collar and dragged him out of the water. Henson was an icicle. He changed boots and scraped the ice off his polar bear pants and hurried to catch up to the rest of the team. On April 5th, they rested a little longer than usual, and took measurements to calculate their location. They estimated they were only 35 miles from the North Pole, practically spinning distance. Before midnight, they were off again in the midnight sun. The conditions were perfect. Hardly any snow with long stretches of beautiful blue frozen lakes. The dogs yipped and yelped with joy as the sledges slid easily behind them. Henson led the way for the first 15 miles. He stopped for lunch and then led the way for another 15 miles. They were nearly at the pole when, actually they passed it. They did it, they reached the North Pole. Or did they? It's complicated. Perry collected a few observations and then planted the stars and stripes at the top of the world. They had to get home quickly as possible. If they didn't make it back, they couldn't tell their story. Time meant nothing. The only thing that mattered was moving fast enough to stitch together the trail before it broke apart. The return trip was a horrible nightmare but they made it the roosevelt was frozen in place until july 17th and they didn't arrive back in new york until october 2nd by that time there was a fierce debate about who made it to the north pole first a former expedition member dr cook was also claiming that he reached the north pole people picked sides and many doubted both men Most people eventually sided with Perry, but in 1968, Ralph Pleisted and three fellow Minnesotans on snowmobiles made the first officially confirmed trip to the North Pole by land. That's a story for another time. Matthew Henson was a revolutionary Arctic explorer. His strength of character, adaptability, openness to learning about Inuit culture and determination destroyed racial stereotypes. Was 17 years too long to chase a goal? Did he help move the needle for racial equality in America? Movement and time are relative, especially when you're trying to change the world. His adventures were extraordinary, and his successes demanded that people change their perspective. Eventually, Henson received some recognition for his achievements, but regardless of formal praise, he should be remembered as an inspiring hero by any standard. Hey, thanks for listening. That's a wrap for Season 2 of The Adventure Almanac. Would you like to hear more adventure stories? You can help support the show by following the podcast, leaving us a rating and review, and sharing a favorite episode. Can you help us double the number of positive reviews in Apple Podcasts? In the meantime, if you have an idea for the next season, want to drop us a note, or give us some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at Remember to check out the Adventure Nerds website for a list of references, a map, extra notes, and more. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter and give us a follow on Instagram. Original music for this episode was written and performed by Day I. This story was researched, written, and produced by the team at Adventure Nerds. Until next time, be curious and choose adventure. What adventure would you spend a decade trying to achieve?